This past week, Michael Cohen gave testimony. He's the former lawyer for President Trump. He gave testimony before the House Oversight Committee. And one of the interesting things was there was tension throughout the testimony, right? It was just building tension on all sides. One of the most interesting back and forths that I saw was when Michael Cohen admitted that he had lied previously under oath and yet said that he wasn't a liar. And the response to that from one of the, the people on this committee was, well, if you have told a lie, doesn't that make you a liar? And I would say, yes, it does. But then what do we do with the rest of the committee members in that room? Then what do we do with the rest of all the politicians in the United States government? And then what do we do with all the judges? What do we do with everyone in the White House? What do we do with every one of us sitting right here? We are surrounded by falsehood, lies, unrighteousness. Every aspect of your life is touched by it in some way. At your work, at your school, in your home, you have to deal with falsehood, with unrighteousness, which with that which is not true. The question that comes to us then, what do we do in this world full of lies? Where, where can we find truth in the midst of all of these lies? How can we be people of truth in the midst of a world full of lies? And I believe our text today speaks to this, and it points to the one that you know I'm going to point to, Jesus Christ Jesus is true, and in him there is no unrighteousness. This is the one to whom we turn in a world full of lies. And if we want to be people of truth, it stands to reason that we must then find ourselves united to this one who is the truth. We, we won't be true on our own. We won't come to truth on our own. We must find it as we come to Jesus in faith and come into union with him. And as, as we then are united to him in faith, then he produces this within us. He makes us a people of truth by his own spirit which dwells within us. How can we be true in a world of lies? Where can we find truth in this world of lies? It is found in Jesus Christ who himself is true. And in him there is no unrighteousness. This is the theme of our passage this morning. Jesus is true, and in him there is no unrighteousness. But I want us to see how he displays that throughout these 24 verses. He displays that he is true in contrast with others' characters throughout this passage. His brothers, the crowds, the Jews. He, he's clearly contrasted with them, and we see that he is true by this, by his joyful submission to the Father. Notice I say joyful submission. It is not a burden for Jesus to submit to his heavenly Father. Rather, it brings him great joy to submit to his heavenly Father in his words and in his life. So I want us to see this morning three ways where Jesus displays this humble submission, this joyful submission to 
the Father. I'll go ahead and point out the three ways. In his timing or plan, we could say, in verses 1 through 13, he joyfully submits to the Father. In his teaching, verses 14 to 18, he joyfully submits to the Father. And in his judgments, verses 19 to 24, he joyfully submits to the Father. And in all these ways, he is displaying that he is the truth. Contrasted with all of the lies that surround him, he is true. We've been working our way through the Gospel of John, and there was a decisive turn when Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath day. He told him, get up, take up your mat, and and walk, and he did. But instead of being amazed, the Jews were angry. He had healed someone on the Sabbath. There was a decisive turn where they sought to kill him all the more. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was making himself equal with God. He was claiming that he was equal with the Father in heaven. And they could not stand for this. Well, then we saw Jesus feeding the 5,000 from virtually nothing. He feeds the crowds, but they don't apprehend the spiritual meaning of, of the miracle. Jesus is the bread of life. In order to have eternal life, you must feast on him. You must enjoy him. You must take him into yourself. You must delight in him. The Jews took offense to this. They were angry that he was claiming he was from above. They were angry at him saying, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. They were angry that he said, no one can come to me unless the Father grants it to him. And so we, we, from this miracle of healing one on a Sabbath, we are intensifying. Jesus and the Jews' relationship is, is getting more and more tense. They are getting angrier and angrier. And in chapters 7 and 8, it, it becomes coming to a head. Chapters 7 and 8, the context is Jesus going up to Jerusalem in the midst of of this Feast of Booths, this Feast of Tabernacles, which would be a great celebration at the time of the Jews. And Jesus makes it all about himself. He's he's virtually saying, all of these laws that you're hoping in, Moses in whom you're hoping, these celebrations, these are all fulfilled in me. You're missing the point. He's, He's drawing attention to himself. So we could say, in a sense, Jesus in his teaching, as we'll see, is very self-centered. And yet for Jesus to be self-centered is for Jesus to be Christ-centered. It's not, it's not, it wouldn't be wrong if you're going to a world-renowned surgeon and he's talking about his skill, his education, how he knows what he's doing, and just to say, well, you're just being self-centered. No, that's where your hope is. That's what you need. You need his skill. And in the same way, when Christ speaks of himself when Christ is Christ-centered, he's pointing us to our greatest need. Not these other things, not the law, not these ceremonies, not the feasts. Jesus himself is the one that we need, but they completely miss it, and they get angry, and it all culminates at the end of chapter 8 when they pick up stones, and they are ready to kill him on the spot. So chapter 7 and 8 is this great intensification of Jesus' relationship with the Jews and their intent to kill him. With that context in mind, then we come to these three ways we see Jesus joyfully submit to the Father. 
and he displays how he is true. Look at how Jesus joyfully submits to the Father in the Father's timing. In the Father's timing or in the Father's plan in verses 1 through 13. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him and the Feast of Booths was at hand. So his brothers, look at what they tell him to do. You need to show yourself to the world. Now is your opportunity. Maybe they had seen in the, in the context of John this great shrinking of the following of Jesus. The Jews are against him. Everyone's against him. Even many who say they were his disciples turn away from him and no longer follow him. Well, here's your chance, Jesus. Go and show yourself at the feast. Do amazing miracles and you will gain a huge following. You will receive glory. Some scholars have seen this as similar to the temptation that the devil gives to Jesus in other gospel accounts. To receive glory here and now, to be lifted up and to crown, be crowned king because of his great works. And yet Jesus says, no, it's not time yet to do this. His brother's encouragement was motivated from the fact they didn't actually trust in him, as John tells us. Not even his brothers believed him, in him. But Jesus says, my time has not yet come. I will not go up to this feast. My time has not come. He says it twice. And he remains in Galilee. He says, you can go up at any time, but things are different for me. Not only are the Jews seeking to kill me, but he also has in mind his father's timeline his father's plan the word here for time he's pointing to the the right time the the time that has been specified by the father the opportune time for him to go up see jesus is displaying a faithful trust and patience in the plan of god in the time that he has designed for him it's not that the Jesus wouldn't ever receive glory, right? We know that he would. He was looking forward to a glory which lay ahead of him. But it wasn't time for that. The time for him now was to wait, and to suffer. Before the glory comes the shame. Before the glory comes the suffering and the sorrow. Before the joy in the end comes death on the cross. Our timing is not always God's timing. He displays, though, his truth as opposed to his brothers in seeking God's glory and not his own. Another item in the news this past week was Bryce Harper, who signed a huge deal with the Philadelphia Phillies. He had been playing with the Washington Nationals, my favorite team, for the last six years. And over those six years, he had made five, nine million years in his first five years, and then an extra $20 million in that sixth year. So you're talking $30 million over the course of six years. How would you like that? Don't, don't let the money throw you off, though, because there are some in third world countries, other areas, who would fawn over your salary. But he made $30 million in six years, and now... He had waited, he had patiently waited, chump change, right, for, for multimillionaires, 10, 
20, 30 million dollars, and he signed this 330 million dollar contract for 13 years with the Philadelphia Phillies. The point is, he, he waited patiently during those, poor guy, right? He waited patiently during those six years because he knew the payoff was coming. And it's a big payoff, is it not? Well, brothers and sisters, consider your own circumstance. How, how joyful would you be if you worked six years for your current salary, but you knew year seven you were going to get ten times as much? Would that be worth the wait? At your job, what kind of, what kind of frustrations you, would you be willing to face if you knew your salary was going to be multiplied by ten at the end of seven years? What kind of challenges, what kind of rude co-workers? You would deal with just about anything, I dare say, would you not? Because then year, year eight, you could just retire. <laughs> the truth of the matter is, as you may have suspected, we have much greater promises in the gospel. Our time here on earth is short compared to the, glory, to the time that we will see in the future. And Paul himself says in Romans chapter 8, the glory to be revealed. It's not, it's not worthy to be compared with our current sufferings. What you're facing now is terrible for some of you perhaps. There are real and terrible things in this world. There are real and terrible challenges that we must face. Su sufferings, tears, sorrows. And yet we are, sure, are assured in the gospel that we won't remember any of that in the life to come compared to what we will have in Christ. It puts to shame $330 million. What I'm encouraging, encouraging you to do is to hold out, brothers and sisters, for the timing which God has for you, for the glory which is to be revealed. What can you endure in this life? What challenges will you be able to face because you're looking forward beyond the suffering, beyond the trials, to the reward, which is eternity in heaven, not just in heaven, but with God, in the very presence of a God who loves you, who cares for you, who provides for you, and who will meet your every desire. Wouldn't it be worth it in this life to wait? This is what we see in Jesus, is it not? He knew the cross was coming. He knew that before glory, he must face terrible suffering, beatings and mockings, a horrible crucifixion in which his hands and feet were pinned to a cross of wood. And yet worse of all, the, the wrath of God poured out on him for sinners. He knew all this was coming. And yet he patiently endured, waiting for the proper time to receive glory. The scripture says he did it with joy. With joy he bore the shame because he was looking beyond to the reward. He faithfully submitted to the timing that God had for him. It wasn't his time yet to go to this feast when his brothers wanted to, and in the way that his brothers had wanted him to go. Yet he does go up to the feast in his own timing when, when God 
said it was appropriate for him to go. There were discussions about who he was. Is he a good man? Is he leading others astray? But Jesus bides his time and he waits until the very middle of the feast, at which time he stands up and begins teaching. This is the second way Jesus displays his joyful submission to the Father. In his authority, in his teaching, he submits to the Father. He stands up to teach, and the Jews are amazed. Where did this guy get his, his letters, it says literally? Where did he get his learning? Where did he get his education? He's never studied. And Jesus answers them, God, my Father, is my teacher. He says, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Look at what else he says in verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, if anybody does God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent me is true, and in him there is no falsehood. God is Jesus' teacher. God submits to the authority, uh, Jesus submits to the authority of his Father. His teaching is not his own. He teaches with authority as one who has had a great education, and yet he is deriving the content of his teaching from his heavenly Father. The Jews themselves place their authority in themselves, in one another, seeking their own glory, seeking glory from one another. They made up their own traditions. They made up their own rules and sought to burden other people with them. Notice the contrast between Jesus' joyful submission to the Father and the Jews in their own teaching, establishing themselves as those who are the authority. We think of Jesus learning from the Father. It's almost as if Jesus, it's almost like having a teacher where it was actually fun to learn in school. Did you have any teachers like that? Where it was, all the other classes, it was difficult to learn. It was, it was begrudging learning. It was difficult. And yet there was one and you, you plugged right in and you were able to learn and you were able to grow and you enjoyed it. I remember one of my middle school science teachers made it that way. He had a bed of nails and he let us lay down on this bed of nails that he had made. One guy got cut, but other than that, it was, it was amazing. We were all engaged. It was a joy to learn. And in this, in this passage, it, Jesus is portrayed as one who joyfully is submitting to the Father's authority in his teaching. He's, he's in a sense, learning from the Father. He, he's enjoying his relationship with the Father, and he is teaching what the Father has given him to teach. The Jews, on the other hand, rejected God's teaching. They rejected, really, they rejected the Old Testament teaching because we know that, as Jesus says, it's, it's bearing witness about me. They're rejecting the Father's authority. Well, the first application concerning this point would be that Jesus is true in all that he says. He is a faithful teacher. He is the one who teaches with the authority of God. A secondary and indirect application would be concerning our own doctrine our own understanding of scripture our own teaching do we faithfully submit 
to the Father and to His teaching? Do we faithfully come under the authority of God? Or do we seek, like the Jews, to set up our own traditions, our own teachings? Do we seek to follow our own rules? I mean, consider how many problems you have in your own life simply because you have not joyfully submitting to the teaching and the authority of God. Family problems? Can you locate an area where you are not faithfully submitting to the authority of God? Other relational problems? Other problems of sin that you have? Are they not because you are not joyfully submitting to the authority of God? This is what all humans do by nature. We reject, we rebel against authority. We don't like anyone telling us what to do. We, we want to make the rules for ourselves. And so we push off anyone who tells us to do, first of all, preeminently, God. We push Him off. We rebel against what He has for us. We rebel against His teachings to us. When you make decisions about your future, about school, about work, about your family, do you submit those things to the authority of God? I'm drawn to think about the importance here of community in particular because how often when we get alone with perhaps just our Bibles and our own thoughts, we, we can come up with some good solutions to our problems, some good decisions, and sure, we think they're absolutely biblical, like Jason was talking about this morning. Now we're kind of biased toward our own interpretations. But if we begin to open ourselves up to our brothers and sisters in Christ, we can speak into one another's lives concerning the authority of God's teaching for us. We, we can test our own biases of ourselves with our brother who, who can be true and honest with me about what he sees in Scripture. This is vital for us if we are to submit joyfully to the authority of God. And yet we often fail just like the Jews did. Jesus, Jesus here remains as one who faithfully teaches from the Father and faithfully obeys the Father in all that He does. He faithfully submits, joyfully submits to God the Father in His timing, in His teaching, and lastly, He submits to the Father in His judgments. Verses 19 to 24. Jesus commands them at the end of this passage in verse 24. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Or you can say, but judge the righteous judgment. Do not judge by appearances, but judge the righteous judgment. The Jews were judging Jesus by His appearances. We know where you came from. We know your parents. You have no great origin. You haven't come from God. You've come from Galilee. They were judging him according to his education. He had no great educational background. They were judging only by what they could see in him. And yet Jesus judges them with righteous judgment. Notice in verse 19, Jesus says, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? He, he points out their hypocrisy. He is judging them with righteous judgment. 
They held up the law of Moses as that which was to be kept at all costs, as that which would give them life by keeping the commandments of Moses. And yet Jesus is saying, by you seeking to kill me, you're breaking the law of Moses. You shall not murder. But he goes further as well, pointing back to that instance where he healed the man on the Sabbath. He says, Moses gave you circumcision, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a, a man's whole body well? By circumcision they were, in a sense, healing the, the one in a, in a covenant ceremony sort of way. And yet Jesus heals the, the whole man and they are offended that he is working on the Sabbath day. He's pointing out their hypocrisy. They are judging by appearances, but the judgment of Jesus is righteous. And the truth of the matter is, as we've already seen, that every one of us would fall down under the righteous judgment of God himself. Not only do we not judge righteously, but we come under the judgment because of our unrighteousness. It's as if a bowling ball is rolled and all the pins down, all the pins fall down except one. There's one remaining when it comes to God's righteous judgment. And it is Jesus Christ. The prophets foretold this. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 11 speaks of this one who would come and judge rightly. There it is written, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what he sees, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Where do we find truth in the midst of this world which is filled with lies it is this one who is prophesied of old jesus is true and in him there is no unrighteousness and if we want to stand as those of truth in the midst of the world it will not come by our own efforts our own strength our own willpower in trying to be faithful and true it will be it will come by faithful submission to this one and faith in this one who was foretold the righteous branch, the stump of Jesse, this, this one who comes to judge the nations in righteousness. Interesting, isn't it, that this one who is faithful to judge, this one who is righteous in his judgments, is actually the one who becomes the judged one for us. The one who, the only one who stands with righteous judgment is the one who actually lays down his life and allows the Father to judge him for those of us who deserve to be judged. This is our hope, brothers and sisters. 
That Christ laid down his right to judge momentarily, that he would be judged on our behalf. So then where, where's your hope, brothers and sisters, in the midst of this broken and difficult world, in the midst of your suffering and trials? Where is your hope? In the 18th century, there was a man, a poet and hymn writer by the name William Cooper. It looks like Cowper, C-O-W-P-E-R, William Cooper. He was plagued by many sufferings. He was plagued in his mental health. He attempted suicide at one time. And yet he, he didn't give up trusting in Jesus in the midst of these trials. He didn't give up, even though sometimes he was within turmoil within himself. He didn't give up trusting in Jesus. And after, in fact, he attempted suicide, he wrote the hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Have you ever heard the hymn? God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds which you now dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. In the midst of his sufferings, he knew that he needed to look beyond the current circumstance, beyond the, the current difficulties, beyond the current sufferings to the one who held him in his hands, the one who was true and righteous altogether, and in him there is no unrighteousness. You can be sure of this, brothers and sisters. You can be sure that every promise Jesus has made will come true in the midst of, of, of your worst suffering. We have then our, our current sufferings on the one hand and the promises of Jesus, the true and faithful one. Embrace Jesus and his words and be sure that he will fulfill them. Let's pray together.